KMTT, Kimitzion, Tetze Torah, Vav Kislev, Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Parshat Ve'etze. You are listening to the Erev Shabbat program with your host, Jonathan Snowbell. Parshat Ve'etze is the parasha of Galut. Being outside of Eretz Yisrael, being in exile perhaps, perhaps being there out of choice, both elements come up in the parsha. Before I continue, before I forget, I would like to dedicate, as has been the practice until now, I'd like to dedicate um, the Arab Shabbat program to the high school teachers across the state of Israel who are bravely striking and have been striking for over a month, since October 10th. Maybe we'll come back to that towards the end of the program. In any case, as we mentioned, Parshat Vayetzeh is the parasha of Galut. as far as Yaakov Avinu's life is concerned, um, we have different galuyot amongst the of the Avot. The Ramban talks about the galut of Avraham to Mitzrayim, that that's already a sign of uh, our galut in Mitzrayim, uh, slavery in Mitzrayim later on. Um, Yaakov has a more substantial galut. Also, Chazal talk in terms of galut regarding Yosef being sold to Mitzrayim. But this week's parsha is about Yaakov Avinu, Yaakov Avinu for 20 years is outside of Eretz Yisrael, and it spans this week's Parsha, because he leaves and he's there for 20 years, 14 years where he works for um, both Rachel and Leah, and an additional six years where he amounts wealth in uh, Haran. And in that sense, there are truly two types of Galut in this week's Parsha, because we have Yaakov Avinu being exiled from Eretz Yisrael, he's running away from his brother, he must leave to find a wife, there's an element of punishment then, uh, because A, he's being exiled, he has to run away from Eretz Yisrael, he, does, he wants to stay in Eretz Yisrael, but he must leave. Tell me he has to get a wife from Haran, well, Yitzchak got a wife from Haran without stepping foot out of Eretz Yisrael, Yaakov Avinu had to step out of Eretz Yisrael. On the other hand, Yaakov Avinu is in Galut, in Chutz Laaretz, out of choice, because after 14 years, he's prepared to go back, and yet he stays to amass wealth in Haran before returning to Eretz Yisrael. In that sense, I think uh, it is incumbent upon us to decide to ask the question, what is Galut? What is the purpose of Galut? Why was Yaakov Avinu in Galut? Why are historically Am Yisrael in Galut in different points in history? Galut, on the one hand, is a punishment um, when someone does not take advantage of their situation and, and in fact disrespects the situation that they're in. They sometimes just have to be thrown out of that situation and be punished and be put out. And all the suffering that happens in Galut is a testimony to it being a punishment and not just anything besides that. However, we believe in a God who is El-Rachum Echanun, and doesn't punish out of vengeance just to fulfill some desire for vengeance. Even his vengeance is a vengeance of education, and every punishment has an educational value as well. We pray and hope that when we are dealing with our children, our students, whoever is in our sphere of influence, that when we punish, we punish for an educational purpose as well. That's what we strive for. But certainly God, 
who doesn't need to strive for anything, when he is punishing us, he's punishing us not just for the element that we should feel punished, but that there should be some educational value, some constructive result of the punishment. I think what I'd like to do then is try to go straight for the definition and try from the definition to see how this implements itself in different places, in different galuyot. The definition that through contemplating the Parsha perhaps, um, through a section within Rav Kook's writing which we'll address later on in the show, the definition that I've come to is the following. On an educational level, Galut lightens the responsibilities of the individual in question in the case of Yaakov, or the nation in question in the case of Am Yisrael, in the different generations that it existed in Galut. It lightens the responsibilities so that the, the being in Galut can focus on acquiring skills that are difficult to acquire in a fuller life with more responsibilities. Living in Eretz Yisrael, living a full life of the responsibility of being a nation in power, running a country, mitzvot atliyot ba'aretz, defending oneself from one's enemies, running a government, an economy, an education system, a social system, tremendous responsibilities. And with all of that, keeping the Torah, in addition to keeping the Torah within those elements that we've discussed, it's a tremendous responsibility. It's a tremendous weight. And at times it is possible that we are not standing, we're not being able to hold up the weight of those responsibilities, and we fail. And when we fail, we fail badly. And some, or more than some, of those responsibilities are forsaken and pushed aside. And when that happens, Galut kicks in to relieve us of those responsibilities and let us focus on the areas that need strengthening. And we'll give examples in order to understand what this means. We'll start from an easier example, Har Sinai. The Torah was given in Galut, outside of Eretz Yisrael, a variation on Galut, because it was on the way to Eretz Yisrael, not just in Warsaw Ghetto, but in Har Sinai, after Yitziat Mitzrayim, on the way to Eretz Yisrael, but nonetheless outside of Eretz Yisrael. The Kabbalat Torah, the acceptance of the Torah, was before the Yisum of the Torah, the implementation of the Torah. Could Am Yisrael have digested the Torah and implemented it simultaneously in all the meanings of implementation? The Torah was new to Am Yisrael. There wasn't the elders who knew the Torah and now needed to pass it down to the younger generation as we have today. It was new to the entire, the entire nation. Could a nation truly digest the Torah and implement it simultaneously? Or perhaps was it necessary to take away some of those responsibilities? Give the Torah in Chutzlaretz, let the Torah be digested, let the Torah be learned, and only after this, come into Eretz Yisrael, once the Torah was something that was understood, was held onto, was grasped, 
Then, once we've focused on that skill, once we've acquired that skill to a certain extent, we can now try implementing. This is a concept in educational theory and psychological educational theory is referred to as automization. We like when we're teaching younger children to focus on one skill at a time, make sure they've mastered that skill, so that now when they do the next skill, it'll be easier because they've already automized the previous skill. When I'm teaching people who do not understand Hebrew properly on any level, a text, a Jewish text, I'm focusing on two skills. I want them to also understand the words, but I also want them to understand the concept that's embedded in the text. So I want to separate the two skills. I want them first to understand the Hebrew on a plain level, on a word-by-word -word vocabulary level, and after that skill has been achieved and they understand the words, now I can move on to the conceptual level. Let's bring it back to our Parsha and try to speculate what Yaakov Avinu accomplished while being in Chutzlaretz that would have been difficult for him to accomplish in Eretz Yisrael. Yaakov Avinu had 11 of his 12 children, pardon me, 11 of his 12 sons in Chutzlaretz. He gave birth to the Shivtei Yisrael, the vast majority of them, in Chutzlaretz. Yaakov Avinu amassed wealth while he was in Chutzlaretz. The amassing of wealth is not something to scoff at, it is something materialistic. The amassing of wealth is something that is necessary to establish oneself as a new nation. A new nation can't be a beggar of nations. If Yaakov Avinu wants to return to Eretz Yisrael or be in Eretz Yisrael and be a player in Eretz Yisrael, he has to be a person of stature. A nation cannot be a nation without an economic infrastructure. A nation can't be a nation without people. Why did Eretz Yisrael interfere with this? On the most basic level, Eretz Yisrael interfered with it on the level of Esav. Esav was there. Esav was chasing after Yaakov. Being in Eretz Yisrael and being a player in Eretz Yisrael, perhaps in the shadow of his father, perhaps being a citizen of Eretz Yisrael, if you would, it's difficult to come and start something new. It's easier to go away, be forgotten, and now come back, not as an individual person, but as an empire, if you will. With a large family, with wives, with slaves, with cattle. Now somebody's come. Not some local person who was always there, who yesterday was by himself. Now he's got one child, now he's got two child, children. But instead, a person who's disappeared, and now suddenly has come back with a huge entourage. The birth of a nation. The Galut of Yaakov accomplished something. There was something that had to be done in Haran, and I invite our, our listeners to further contemplate this question. Something in Eretz Yisrael would not have allowed Yaakov to reach the stature that he reached in Haran. In Haran, he wasn't responsible for as much. He was not his own person. He was working for Lavan. He was not fending for himself. He was on Lavan's territory. So the responsibility is of being the head of the household, buying land, building. That wasn't his responsibility. He was in Lavan's house. He was working for Lavan. The responsibilities of a, a worker in a company as opposed to the CEO of the company, 
the worker can accomplish much more work than the CEO because the CEO is overlooking everything, vast majority, vast, vast responsibilities. Yaakov Avinu being an important, an, an important player within Lavan's household is still not the head of the household. And therefore, he can focus on having children, he can focus on amassing personal wealth, because he's not overlooking everything. Now he is coming into Eretz Yisrael. Now he's going to have dealings with the nations. Now, after he enters Eretz Yisrael and he has older sons, he's not going to be able to have the same strength to amass wealth, to establish a family. And this had to be done in seclusion, with less responsibilities, while he was in Haran. Rav Kook describes a similar um, idea in Orot Yisrael, where he discusses that Am Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael became too chomri, physical, and this expressed itself during the first bait, the first temple, first in bait Rishon, in Abu Dazarah, later on in bait Sheni, in the second temple, it expressed itself in Sinat Chinam, and Am Yisrael, essentially a nation that, in, in the ideal sense, should be balancing between physical and spiritual elements, moved too far over to the side of physicality. And therefore, they went into Galut. And the physical responsibilities were removed. They were no longer in charge of government, of economy. All they had to do as Jews was focus on the spiritual. And strengthen that spiritual side that had so been weakened. Again, we removed the responsibilities of the physical side of a nation by sending them into Galut. Kadosh Baruch Hu removed and now left them only with the spiritual responsibilities. At this point, I'd like us all to think about what we just said. And before we end the program, I'd like to perhaps speculate once again about the meaning of Galut for us today. But again, at the end of the program, we will now go to Rav Tavori. This week on Yud Yud Kislev is the yard site of Rebis Zaman Meltzer, the Rosh Hashiva of Eitz Chaim in Yerushalayim. Rebis Zaman was born in 1870 in the city of Mir, where his father was a Rav, but did not practice Rabbanus as a living. Rather, he made his own living as a businessman. When Rebis Zaman was a youngster, he learned at home in the Mir, in the city of Mir, and then he moved to learn in Yeshiva Valajim, where he became a student of the Nitziv, as well as Reb Chaim. It's reported that in Valajin, they used to give titles to different people. There was a person who was an Ilui, a person who was a Chatsi Ilui, a person who was an Ilui of the Iluyim, but they say that when they spoke about the Ilui of the Yeshiva, they were referring to Rebbe Sezalm. At a very young age, he went to Slabotka to become a Raman Yeshiva, together with his brother-in-law, Reb Moshe Mordechai Epstein. He stayed in the yeshiva of Slabotka for a short time, and then he moved to the city of Slutsk, where he became the Rav of Slutsk, and started a yeshiva in Slutsk. When the yeshiva started, the Rashi yeshiva, with whom Rebbe was friendly, were asked to send Talmidim Mitsuyanim, excellent students, to Slutsk to become Gedola Yisrael, to become Gedolim, learning in the yeshiva of Slutsk. The first group was known as a very small elite group of people, some of whom I've had the privilege to know and respect. The ones that I personally had contact with came to America later, and one was known 
as Rav Henkin, one of the major Polskim of America, Rav Palayov, who was a Rebbe in Yeshiva University for over 50 years, and Rabbi Rachman, the father of the Rabbi Emanuel Rachman, Rav David Rachman, was a, one of the, the Slutsker Talmidim. When Rav Palayov was Nifter, so Rav Henkin came to the Levaya in Yeshiva University, and Rav Henkin said, he talked about Sridei Slutsk, those people that were left over from Slutsk, how many people were still alive from the Yeshiva of Slutsk. Eventually, Rav Zizaman went on Aliyah in 1925, where he became the Rosh Yeshiva of Eitzchayim. One of his grandchildren wrote a biography of Rebbe Sezalmin and the history of the time, Derech Eitzchayim, all about the yeshiva, all about Rebbe Sezalmin. And it's a very important historical work that can be used to understand a lot of that period in Jewish history, as well as the life of Rebbe Sezalmin. Rebbe Sezalmin himself was part of a remarkable family. He had one son named Rebbe Feivel Meltzer, who became one of the great Tanakh scholars of Eretz Israel, one of the people who was most responsible for publishing the Das Mikra, the commentary that of, on Tanakh, published by Mossad Rav Kook. And, of course, it's well known that one of the daughters of Rebbe Sezalman married Rebbe Tzvi Yehuda, married Rebbe Aaron Cutler. Rebbe Cutler, Rebbe Aaron, is the son-in-law of Rebbe Sezalman. Another one of Rabbi Sezalman's sons became the Rabbi Ruchavot, Rabbi Tzvi Yudha Meltzer, who was the Rosh Hashiva of Yeshivat HaDarom. He had started his career in Pardis Chana, where he was a Rav in Pardis Chana. And in fact, there was a, 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 a Kletzker Yeshiva, which had evolved from Rebbe Cutler's stay in Pardis Chana at that time. The Talmidim of Rabbi Sezalman are, are world famous. There are many Talmidim who consider themselves to be completely on the derech of Rebbe Sezalman, who look at him as their Rebbe Mufa. Some of the people are Rav Shach, Rav Shlomo Zalman, were all Talmidim of Rebbe Sezalman. The stories about Rebbe Sezalman are famous for his concern for people, his sitkus, and worrying about other people's feelings. A story was told how a little boy went into bother Rebbe Sezalman and asked him questions. And apparently, it was obvious that he was just really bothering Rebbe Sezalman. And he kept answering, kept talking, until finally he walked out of the room, and somebody followed him to see what was he doing. Why did he walk out? And he was saying to himself, Even Ketani. He said, you should respect the dignity of other people as much as you would want people to be worried about your dignity. And he said, that, appear, that applies to children as well. Perhaps for a second, Rebbe was on the verge of losing his temper a little bit, and he tried to overcome by, control, by self-control to show how much he cared, and which, which shows how much he cared for other people. It happens to be that today, someone, a chassid, told me a story about Rebbe Sezalman, which I'd like to share with you. And I also found that it's a story that reflects his sensitivity for other people. The person in question told me today that Rabbi Sezalman once visited the Belzer Rebbe. We had started a conversation about davening one time. When Rabbi Sezalman visited the Belzer Rebbe, he went with a few of his students who probably were somewhat like Shamashim, they probably were taken care, and they visited the Belzer. Now the Belzer, of course, a Hasidic Rebbe, 
well, got involved in one thing, got involved in another, and it seems that the time for Mincha was about to pass. Shkia. The Misnagdim are very careful about having before Shkia. Generally, the Hasidim are not as meticulous. So, some of the people said to Rebbe Sezalman, it's time for Mincha, it's almost Shkia, we should get up to David. Allegedly, Rebbe Sezalman said, we're in the house of the Belzer, we daven together with the Belzer. Whenever the Belzer Rebbe davens, that's when we daven. And indeed, he did. The Hidavin Mincha, it seems to me, rather late according to the story, way after Shkia. But that was the custom of the Belzer Rebbe, and Rebbe in his house, would deport himself the same way. On the other hand, sometimes Rebbe was rather revolutionary in his approach. I also came across recently a tshuva of Rabbi Vadi Yosef, who discusses the famous question why women bench licht on Shabbos before making the bracha. The custom should be that to make the bracha before you light the candles, because all the brachas ha-mitzvah, all brachas before your mitzvah should be made, should be made before you do the mitzvah, not just before, immediately before. And the custom, the prevailing custom that I'm aware of is that people, the women make the, light the candles and afterwards make the bracha. And the general assumption is the reason to do that is because women assume that they are Mechabal Shabbos with Hadlakas Hanir. And if they would make the bracha beforehand, they would think the Kabbalah Shabbos is with the bracha. And once you made the bracha and were Mechabal Shabbos, you couldn't light the candles. Rav Avadu was asked, is this a proper custom? And Ravadi pointed out that the Rambam says, my Friday night candles, just like by any other mitzvah, you must do the mitzvah before, you must do the, make the bracha just before you do the mitzvah. And of course the Rambam says in one place in Hilchas Ishus, that if a person already fulfilled the mitzvah, again in Hilchas Brachas, the Rambam says the same thing, if a person does the mitzvah and afterwards makes the bracha, the Rambam says it's a bracha levatala. It's it not only is not is not effective, but actually you're saying taking God's name in vain. So why do we do our practice? We should have made the bracha before we do the mitzvah. So I said the reason is because women somehow feel that they're makabel Shabbos with the bracha. Rav Avadia said the Sephardi custom should not be that way. We follow the Rambam, and therefore he said the custom should be that Sephardi women should indeed make the bracha, have the intention of not being makabel Shabbos until they finish the hadlaka. And then light the candles and be Mechabal Shabbos. He says there that he heard from a very reliable source that this was the custom of Rabbi Zalman, who instructed his family to follow the custom of benching Lich by making the bracha first and lighting the candles after. Of course, the people connected with Yeshivat HaRetzion know that Rav Amital, a Rosh Hashiva, is married to the granddaughter of Rabbi Zalman. Rabbi Zin Amital, she should be well, is the daughter of Reb Tzvi Yehuda Meltzer, the son of Rebbe Zalman, who was the Rav of Rehava. I would be curious, I've never done it before, I would be curious to ask her what her custom is. Is this really the, a family tradition that Rebbe Zalman instructed women to make the bracha before they bench lit, before they bench lit? Rebbe Zalman wrote a sefer that's called Evan Ha'aza. It's a sefer on the Rambam. It began, he began printing it volume by volume, and it's on the sections of the Rambam, generally Nezikin, Kinyan, Mishpatim, Shoftim. The heart of the Yeshiva Landis of Nezikin is found in those sections of the Rambam, and it's almost amazing that hardly any Rambam goes by, especially anything that seems difficult, there is a Zalman ignore. He went to grips, came to grips with every single difficult, almost every single difficult Rambam, 
in the Zigin Kinyan Mishpatim Shoftim. Later on, other volumes came out, including two volumes on Kachim, which apparently was the topic that he learned more in Eretz Yisrael than he learned in Chutzlaretz. At that time, Kachim was generally not learned. It's true that the Chafetz Chaim began the move to learn Kachim, but in Eretz Yisrael at that time there was more of a move to learn Kachim, especially perhaps in the Bethay Medrash of Brisk. In the Brisker tradition in, in Yerushalayim, they learned mostly Kachim. And Rabbi Sezaman at that time published his Sefer on Kachim, and another two volumes later came out, on, on also on Hilchos Ishus, and on, on uh, the beginning of the Ramam, also on Madra and Ava, Zmanin, the Svarim obviously are classic in the world of Yeshivas. The name of the Sefer, called Evan HaAzel, would seem to be that Azel, he chose the name Evan HaAzel because Azel seems like the initials of Isazalman. And the custom of many Gedolim is to try to put their name into the title one way or another. Rav Zevin wrote an article about Rabbi Sezalman in his Sefer, Ishim Beshitos. In that Sefer, he said a different theory why Rabbi Sezalman called the Svarim Evan Azel. Whenever you open up a Sefer, Evan Azel, you'll see that not only is it called Evan Azel, but there is a little comment there. It says, Evan Azel, according to the Pasuk, V'yashavta, V'yashavta, Eitzel Havan Ha'azel. And he said there, a side comment, look in Rashi. What does Rashi say there? So Rashi says, Evan Ha'azel, Evan Shaita Ot Lalchet A stone and Evan, which would be a sign for the people who are walking on the way. Apparently, Rav Zevin explained that Rabbi Sezalman, Rav Zevin calls him Hagaon, Nitkaven, the intention of this particular Gaon was to give an example of the intellectual approach of learning Gemara as a sign for the whole Chedrachim, namely for the Tamini Chachamim, for people who are on the road to becoming Lamdanim, this would be a helpful sefer. Not only does it explain many sugyas and many Rambams, but it also gives you a certain approach to learning. I'd like to conclude with another story that I heard. Actually, I heard the story from Rav Garin. In Yerushalayim, when Rav Garin was a young man, he used to like to go around to different shiurim, to hear shiurim from the gedolim of Yerushalayim, and he liked to argue with them. He said that one time he used to go to Rabbi Sezalman and speak to him in learning. It was known that Rabbi Sezalman loved yeshiva boys and always talked to them in learning. And very often Rav Garin used to argue with him and try to slug, try to reject his his arguments, his reasoning. And uh, the way Torah is, Milcham Torah, they had a, a sometimes a heated discussion about it, what it was, and Rav Garin thought it was tremendously important in his growth and his learning to discuss things with Rav Sezalman. He said, Rav Garin told the story, that one day he heard that Rav Sezalman started to give shi'er in yeshiva, and Rav Garin did not go to that particular shi'er. And a person asked the question, and Rabbi Sezalman said, your question is so good, I'm canceling the shear, I'm stopping the shear now, we have to rethink it. Rav Garin heard the story and ran to Rabbi Sezalman. He wanted to hear what did what happened in the shear that day, that Rav that, that Rabbi Sezalman just gave up the shear because of a kasha. So he asked, and Rabbi Sezalman told him what the shear was, and he told him the kasha. Rav Garin said, I could answer that kasha. I don't understand why you had to stop the shear. Allegedly, Rabbi Sezalman said to him, I could have answered the kasha too. As soon as he asked the question, I thought of answers. But the truth is that I hadn't thought of that question beforehand. I realized I wasn't that well prepared. Even though I could have answered the kasha, it showed me that I didn't feel the shir was prepared enough to deliver in public. You see the modesty of Rabbi Sezalman that for some question that he could have answered, but he stopped the shir, 
and it gave the impression that somehow young, some young fellow had almost upstaged him in the world of learning. So Rebis Zalman was known as a gong, but even perhaps more so, his sitkis and his love for people, taking care of people, worrying about people, were a tremendous reflection of his personality. His children, his grandchildren, his Talmidim perpetuate his memory, and his Sefer Eben Azel will certainly perpetuate his memory in the world of Yeshivas for many, many, many years. That is greater than anything else. Hoshivu Yeshiva Al-Kivro, the Yeshiva is based on his Kever. The learning of the Sfarim Eben Azel will always be a memory to Eben Azel. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. <clears throat> Once again, in the first half of the program, we discussed Galut and its meaning, and we suggested a definition that perhaps on an educational level, Galut removes certain responsibilities from us as a nation so we can focus on some of the weaker, some of our weaker responsibilities that are necessary for us as a nation. So we mentioned Rav Cook, who said our physical side became too strong and our spiritual side too weak in Eretz Yisrael, and we were sent into Galut. We were relieved of the physical responsibilities, government, economy, infrastructure in Galut, and therefore we were only Jewishly working on our spiritual sides. What does that mean to us for us today? Today, Galut to me means the Western world, North America, England. We've essentially cleared out most of the Galuyot, and the Galuyot today are not exiles as much as Galut by choice, as Yaakov Avinu in the, his last six years in Haran. Nonetheless, I firmly believe that those Galuyot, as they exist today, have something there that is uniquely there that they could bring to Eretz Yisrael. And their, and those, and their existence in Galut has served them well, they can bring now something back to Eretz Yisrael. And we can speculate. I think, perhaps, without being a big expert, that the Israeli business world has a lot to learn from how things are run in North America. I'm sure there's things for them to learn from how it's run here too. But I think we have a lot to learn. We in Eretz Yisrael have a lot to learn from how businesses are run in North America. Perhaps bureaucracy issues as well. Perhaps... In, in light of the teacher strike that we mentioned at the beginning of the program, uh, we can learn from a lot of the educational systems in Chutzlar how to at the same time make greater demands on teachers, but at the same time give them greater compensation so that they can live in a dignified manner. And I think there are a lot of models in, in the diaspora today that can be models for us here as well. The last thing though, I think that there's a unique situation in, in the Western diaspora today, which I, perhaps seldom existed throughout our, our time in Galut over the past 2,000 years. And this is something that I like to say and uh, comes from the Kuzari at the very, very end. The Kuzari, quoting the Psukim and Tehilim, says, You will arise and have mercy on Sion because the time to have mercy on it has come. It's a rough translation. The time has come, and the Kuzari says, when is the time come? And he quotes the following pasuk, 
because your servants have wanted its stones and desired the dust, its dust. And the Kuzari explains, the time for Geula will come when Am Yisrael desire and yearn for the rocks and dust of Eretz Yisrael. And I always ask myself, hasn't Am Yisrael always desired for Eretz Yisrael? When they were going through Tsarot, upon Tsarot, in Galut, Gerush Svarad, the expulsion from Spain, and the Chmelnitsky pogroms, and the Holocaust, and, and a longer list that we all know of. Didn't Am Yisrael desire for Eretz Yisrael? Didn't the time of Geula already come then? And the answer is no, because the time of Geula didn't come. Why? Because if I desire Eretz Yisrael, because Chmelnitsky's sword is over my head, then what I'm desiring is to be saved from Chmelnitsky's sword. My desire for Eretz Yisrael is not a pure desire for Eretz Yisrael, but and a desire which is adulterated with and a desire for salvation, a desire for a better life. Jews in the Western world, not everyone, <coughs> by and large in comparison, are living the better life <coughs> that our ancestors always desired when they were suffering in, in exile. In that sense, the, our, our brethren in, in North America have a unique ability to desire Eretz Yisrael in an unadulterated fashion. When a Jew from North America moves to Eretz Yisrael, when he has everything that he wants there, he has physical taken care of, he even has spiritual, he has shuls and he has schools, and he decides to come to Eretz Yisrael, his desire for Eretz Yisrael is a true kiratsua vadechet It's an unadulterated desire for Eretz Yisrael. <coughs> In that sense, perhaps, the last something that we're able to take out of this long exile that Am Yisrael has been in, that we can take out of the exile, the diaspora of the West of Jewry in the Western world, is that desire for Eretz Yisrael. Not a desire to come to Eretz Yisrael as refugees from the Holocaust, not a desire to come to Eretz Yisrael as refugees from militant Arab regimes who are kicking the Jews out of their country, but a desire to come to Eretz Yisrael, to be in Eretz Yisrael, to be a partner with the Jewish people and what they're doing in Eretz Yisrael, and for no other reason. And if that happens en masse, I am confident that that is what the Kuzari and David HaMelech wrote in Tehilim, Ki Ratsu Shabbat Shalom. We'll see you next week.